Well, there's a great line in the film where Jesse asks Bob Ford whether or not he wants to be like Jesse James or actually be Jesse James. Where do you think the truth lies? I think he wanted to be um, like Jesse James. I think he wanted to be like him. I think he wanted to have the things that he had. I don't think he wanted to be him. I think he wanted to be himself. He thought that he was capable of great things. He thought he felt like he was this uh, kind of romantic gunslinging hero that he read about in the books. You know, um, that's what he thought he was, and so he just wanted to. He wanted it to be Jesse James and Robert Ford robbing the train, and you know, the comic books be written about him. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not to Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bomb theatrically or the critics just tore apart. Brad, episode 157, season four, right? Is that, yes. is that how the cool kids rank their that's, stuff? Now? That's what we're doing. We're doing. And we're doing, I think this might be the longest title of any movie ever made. Uh, we are doing The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford from 2007 yes after talking about an over three hour movie last week we just had to follow it up with a two hour and 40 minute film correct jesus man we gotta pick something <laughs> shorter for next week i agree <laughs> we, we need some 90 minute uh movies for from here on out for a little bit no this is this is an interesting pick uh grindhouse was 2007 this movie came out in 2007 um, and there's a couple other films that came out in 2007, which made that year pretty significant, right? I, I consider 2007 to be one of the greatest film years of all time. Um, just on the strength of some of the films we've already talked about and then there be blood and no country for old men. Um, it, it's a stacked year. Um, yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Probably. I don't want to say the last great film year we've had cause we've, you know, there's been others, but it, it stands out from the last 25 years is one that's really uh, instrumental in, in kind of formation of just where a lot of, a lot of directors peaked. Yeah. Or, so, yeah. or, I mean, we talked about last week, you had Quentin Tarantino who, or it was like a turning point in their career. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who, who looked at other artists and said, Oh my gosh, I, I need to up my game. But yeah, there, there, there's a couple of you know years out there that we've kind of touched upon. If you go back and think about like when The Wizard of Oz was released, um, there's, that year was was pretty amazing in terms of all of the classic iconic films that came out that year. 2007 to me is very reminiscent of it. That you know, give it um, even 30, 40 years later, I think people are going to go back and look at that year and go, oh my goodness look at these things that just sort of defined the artistry, the industry, um, and, and just, I don't know, made, made some movies that maybe flew under the radar, kind of like the one we're talking about today, just that much more important in terms of what it did to the film landscape. I think, I don't know. I, yeah, don't know I mean, think. just think about it. We've done, we've done Zodiac. That was 2007. Um, you know, obviously Michael Clayton comes out in 2007. I mean, it is just, 
you just name films. You're like, that's a great film. That's a great film. That's a great film. It's it's crazy. And that's kind of where we're getting a lot of the like R-rated films, uh, comedies as well. So yeah, this is a really pivotal year in, in film. Yeah. Tip, I mean, typically we might discuss some aspect uh, of a genre. I, I actually thought, man, we, we should go through all the films that just had ridiculously long titles. Cause I, I almost thought, well, you know, one hypothesis is if you're if the title of your film is more than like seven words, it's pretty much guaranteed a bomb, but I don't know if that's true. I, I would love to go test that, but I had zero time to do research because it's been a busy week and we had to watch this thing. And plus, I don't know about you after watching it, I got really hungry to go back and sort of read the critics reviews and the critics take on this when it was released, because I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I couldn't believe it bombed. I mean, I knew it got a few Academy awards, but I was really surprised how it underperformed. So I don't want to steal your thunder. I kind of want to get to the conversation. So I'm going to kick it over to you and let's go back to 2007 and, and tell us how this thing did when it, when it got released in the theaters. Yeah, so it's released September 21st of 2007 with a reported budget of $30 million. And it's total box office run. I was thinking this film obviously did huge in the United States more than it would do internationally because it is an American Western film. That is incorrect. It makes $3.9 million domestically and $11 million internationally. Um, there's some odd change in there too. So basically it makes $15 million total makes half of its production budget. That's, that's crazy to me given it's a, it's a Brad Pitt film in 2007. What I did find interesting is it does not release in more than 301 theaters. That's the widest it releases. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, opening weekend it released in, uh, five theaters. So mm -hmm. it goes five theaters, five theaters, 61 theaters, 61 theaters, 360 or 163 theaters, and then 301. And then it starts coming back down. So it never releases to a huge, um, uh, wide release. And it's, you know, this is, I always thought they did that for, you know, to build up buzz for, for, um, award season and stuff, but that it, like September is too early for that. That's like a November thing. And so yeah, that's I don't so strange. I couldn't find why it didn't. I mean, with a $30 million budget, you would think, Oh, we're going to release this thing all over the place. Uh, unless, uh, unless they kind of knew this was an art house Western yes. and it was only going to play in, in certain markets. I, I never saw this in the theater. I discovered I, it quite honestly, a couple of years after it came out on Blu-ray. I mean, I, I miss, I missed even seeing it like within a few years of it, of it being, you know, put, put in the theatrical experience. Yeah. Well, the thing you have to remember is 310 to Yuma came out September 7th. That is a Western. Yeah. It's a more broad Western and it's doing quite well at this time. So I wonder, I think it did. If, okay. I, I had thought that same thing. Cause I remember 310 to Yuma coming out beforehand um, and if we were to use the general rule, the double, the double, it didn't do double. Yes, but it did way better than it this. did way better. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not saying it was a box office bomb. 
I think it did okay. But if we were to use the, uh, I don't know, definitions we've been going by from, from just a math perspective, we've always said that if you take your production budget plus the marketing costs, everything else, average rule of thumb is you got to bring in like twice what your budget was just to be considered, you know, sort of a break even film. Yeah. 310 yeah. to Yuma it, did better than this, but it what I, I had always imagined it to be a big box office hit. And you could say, well, it, it did moderately okay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and this is Brad Pitt's production company too. So I was I was shocked that it didn't get a huge release. Um, yeah, so opening weekend, it makes 147k. That's good enough for 38th place. Man. 38th place. Um so it gets beat by obviously a bunch of films, but the top films, the top two films that weekend were Resident Evil Extinction and Good Luck Chuck. Oh boy. Good luck, Chuck. That's the uh Dane Cook comedy, I believe. Oh my god, I f- I totally forgot he made movies. That's yes. right. Okay. Yes. Yep. Uh Jessica Alba, I believe, is the love interest of that one. That's right. Okay. Yep. Got yep. it. Okay. Critically. Uh, the assassination of Jesse James sits at a 77% with their critics and a 75% with the audience. Troy, what do you think the number one criticism of this film is? I'm going to go on a limb and say it meanders and they had an issue with the pacing. It has a runtime of 160 minutes. That was basically what all the criticism boils down to. So, yeah, I, I read something that basically said, uh, and, and you're, you're, you're talking about the detractors, right? Yeah. A, a lot of people looked at this and said, looks great. The performances from Brad Pitt um, and Casey Affleck are, are fantastic. But this is a director who is all style and no substance. That was probably the harshest thing I saw. Yeah. 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 You're, you're right. Uh, but most of the people were saying it's just too damn long. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, and there's a four hour like- cut at one point. Yeah, yeah, I would love to see the four-hour cut. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, films you could have seen in September of 2007. We have films like 310 to Yuma, which makes $127 million, which I think with its $55 million budget, again, is right right there on the breaking yeah. point. Uh, Shoot 'em Up with $42 million across the universe, which is a big stinker for me. Remember Dragon Wars? Oh my God, that was that Korean film that they kind of, it was a big, it was a big hit in Korea. So yeah. And then it makes another, it makes $87 million. Yeah. Eastern promises. Uh, Mr. Woodcock. Oh boy. They made that film. Um, what else did I want to point out here? Oh, good luck. Chuck makes $87 million. That's why we can't have anything nice <laughs> into the wild is another film. I, I really like makes 73. Resident Evil Extinction, $185 million. It looks like the big film of the month was The Game Plan, which I believe, is that a... Was that The Rock? Dwayne Johnson movie? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, I believe he, he might be like a baby... I don't know. Was that like his babysitter, two fairy deal when he was doing all those? Was, um, was Vin Diesel the pacifier? He was the pacifier, yes. Okay, yeah, then... All right, I know. I know yep. And then... About. It's a film I really also liked that came out in 2007. The Kingdom makes $122 million. Yeah, we talked about that when we talked about Miami Vice because you can you can buy Miami Vice and the yeah, Kingdom. Yeah, Miami Vice and the Kingdom together. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's right. Um, so, yeah, those are the films you could have seen in September of 07. Should, should we 
talk about <laughs> what films in 2007, because you, you've concentrated on when this thing came out, what was coming out in September. And September typically, is, it's just not a big month for films, but we had talked about 2007 as being a big year for films. And the two that obviously come to mind are No Country for Old Men and um, There Will, there will be, be Blood. blood right. Yes. Can you think of any others from that year? Super Bad was 2007, yeah. right? Well, we have uh, Eastern Promises, American Gangster, yeah. Juno's that year. Uh, um, oh, uh, Ocean's 13. I said Zodiac, The Born Ultimatum, Knocked Up, 300. Uh, Rob Zombie's uh, Halloween is another one I think that came out that year. What was the Tom Hanks film? Oh, Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, they were kind of getting into the the doldrums, but uh, I Am Legend was another big film, right? I Am Legend, the Will Smith movie. Oh, uh, the other Casey Affleck film that came out that year is Gone Baby Gone, which okay. was I don't think a huge hit. But, oh, before the you before the devil knows you're dead, right? Yeah, yes. but I, yep. I was thinking like we we had Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, No Country for Old Men, mm -hmm. There Will Be Blood, Elizabeth, Ratatouille. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, Eastern Promises you talked about, American Gangster. Yeah, I, I mean, it it was a pretty great year, I think, across the board for every genre. To be Ooh, quite one honest. of the best documentaries ever made. The King of Kong comes out that year. Oh, yeah. Well, let's, the quarters. let's just say it is the best documentary ever made of all time. It might be. Yeah. Opinion. Yeah. It's amazing. Oof. Yeah, that movie's... Mm. You're like a... You're very close to Steve Weeby. Uh, am I? Kind, like, you're just both so nice. Yeah. So yeah. You, you're saying I can't make my own hot sauce and sell it? Uh, that was, uh, that Billy, was Mitchell, right? Mitchell. Billy Mitchell, Billy yeah. Mitchell. Yeah, Billy Mitchell. I like to think of myself as a Steve Weeby, but I could still make my own hot sauce. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, let's talk about the people who made the film. Let, let's talk about this director first, Andrew Dominic. Now he started with music videos and then comes out with, I think an independent film uh, for an independent film for us distribution chopper in 2000. So it was an Australian film. If I remember, have correctly. you seen chopper? I own it. I have not watched it. Okay. It, it's one of those that constantly is, is right there towards the top of the two watch pile, but Obviously, the two watch pile gets moved around all the time, right? It's a it's an Eric Bana film. Yes. Yeah. Uh, does the assassination of Jesse James about seven years later, right? Then in 2012, does Killing Them Softly, which I believe is another box office bomb, right? Yes, and it's our friend Charlie's favorite film. That's right. He loves that film. As a matter of fact, we'll probably talk about this one too. I think this director is going to show up again. Uh-huh. Then he does some more music videos specifically for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And so that name's going to come up quite a bit, right? He does a documentary on Nick Cave and his band called One More Time with Feeling in 2016. Ends up in 2019 working a few episodes of Mindhunter. Then does another documentary on Nick Cave and his band called This Much I Know to Be True in 2022. And then his most recent... I guess you would call it theatrical, but really it was a, a streaming premiere was uh, blonde in 2022. Yep. Did you watch blonde? I have not watched it yet. It's, it's one of those that I, I really want to sit down to see it, but I mean, we all have that list of movies where you go, that's on my radar, 
but it isn't as significant. It's easy to push it down. It is. You you just go, yeah. I'd rather go watch a Marilyn Monroe film than probably that that biopic of her. Yeah, I hated it. Oh, you hated it? Okay. I hated it. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna guess just based on some conversations we've had, Andrew Dominic as a director, you're kind of hot and cold on. Very much so. Yes. Very okay. much so. I don't hate killing them softly as much as some of our friends. Yeah. Um, that's like the only one I think I'm would could be swayed either way. The other ones I'm pretty uh I know which side I'm on. Okay. All right. Well, he does the screenplay for his films. So if you look at screenplay credits, you'll see Chopper, Assassination, Killing Them Softly, and Blonde. Now, this film is based on a novel from Ron Hansen, which I think came out in the early 80s, like 83, something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, the other couple of things I want to talk about sort of behind the scenes is the cinematography. Yeah, you got to talk about Roger Deakins. <laughs> Roger Deakins uh, shot this sucker. So just a refresher, because we talked about Roger back on episode, what, 129, when we discussed the Shawshank Redemption, which Correct. was actually his first Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography. The guy- his first of how many, Troy? How many nominations? 16 nominations 16. and has two wins. So <laughs> that this Roger Deakins name, it's going to come up when you we talk about- You could argue film. that having two for Roger Deakins is not enough. Yeah, I, I would agree, especially if you look at the ones he got nominated for. I know. Um, I'll go on a limb here too and say he, he might've should have maybe won for this one too, especially on one particular sequence. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about yeah, that. We'll get there. Okay. Don't tip that hatch. Okay. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Yeah. Point taken. Music by Nick cave, Mr. Don't drink whiskey alone while listening to his albums or just don't listen. I, I hey, look, I'm not a fan. Are you, a I'm fan? not a fan either. I'm not a fan of Nick cave. Everybody. Cause I love music and I love all genres of music. And everybody, when when I when I say, man, I just I cannot get into Nick Cave. Everybody tells me, look, go back and listen to the Boatman's Call. Like that's that's one of his best mm-hmm. albums. Yep. And I just can't. I mean, no, thank you. Yeah, I I definitely don't want to be alone with a bottle while I'm listening to that album, hearing songs like "People Ain't No Good," "Where Do We Go Now But Nowhere," "An Idiot Prayer." I I feel like his his. <laughs> pretentious haunting melodies just don't do it for me i don't know about you i will tell you that ballad of jesse james track in this is uh pretty spectacular yes i will give him and warren ellis but i'm gonna probably say it's more warren ellis than nick cave is my opinion um but nick cave and warren ellis are contributors to the music and we'll probably talk about the music when we share our thoughts on the film because i I agree with you 100 the soundtrack on this thing's pretty amazing but um, yeah, I look people. I, I the thing about Nick Cave is I almost equate him to Scientology because when you run across Nick Cave fans, they are. I mean, they are. They're probably a step removed from Scientology fans. I mean, as dedicated <laughs> as they are, which I love it. I, I mean, I'm the same way with Jackie Chan, but I think there's quality to Jackie Chan's work. For no, okay, I'm not. I'm going to stop ragging on Nick Cave. Sorry. Let's talk about the cast. Real quick, let's run through this cat. What a cast. Okay. Brad Pitt, Jesse James. Casey Affleck is Robert Ford. Sam Shepard is Frank James. Jeremy Renner. I always forget he's in this thing. Kind of like a chubby face to Jeremy Renner, too. Yeah. As uh, Wood Height. Sam Rockwell. Mr. Any part you give him is going to be amazing. As Charlie Ford. Paul Schneider. What's your favorite Sam, uh, Sam Rockwell film? 
my favorite Sam. Oh, uh, what's the one that George Clooney produced or did he direct the confessions of confessions? What? Yeah. What's the full title of that thing though? Isn't it just called confession? He has a film called confessions, right? No, it was, I thought oh. it was the one that was based on the game show host. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, confessions of a dangerous mind. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that one, that yeah. one. I was going to say moon is probably my favorite. Oh God, that one's good too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He's amazing. Um, did I say Paul Schneider? I think I not did. yet. Okay. Paul Schneider, Dick little Mary Louise Parker as Zerelda James. And the last one I just want to mention because she pops up Zoe Deschanel's Dorothy Evans. So she kind of comes towards the, the end of the very film. end. Like she's got what? Five minutes of screen time. They're, they're extremely potent five minutes though. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, oh boy, here's, here's where we're going to get a little long winded. Let's talk about the production and development. So in March, 2004, Warner brothers and plan B entertainment acquired the feature film rights to Ron Hansen's 1983 novel, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford. Andrew Dominic was hired to write and direct the film adaptation. Pitt was considered to portray Jesse James and the role of Ford eventually was between Affleck and Shia LaBeouf. Affleck, yeah, Casey Affleck. Yeah, or Casey, Casey Affleck, yeah. yeah. So Affleck was cast because it was felt that LaBeouf was too young. And then I, I thought this was interesting. We haven't mentioned him in, in the credits, but he's there. But Bill Clinton's presidential campaign strategist, James Carville, was selected to play governor of Missouri. Yeah, the the uh, raging Cajun himself. That's right. Now, in January 2005, Pitt finally signs his contract and agrees to do the film. And then they start filming August 29th of 2005. Uh, the film was initially edited by the director, and it was supposed to be a dark, contemplative examination of fame and infamy, similar to the style of one Terrence Malick. The studio, however, didn't really like this take on the material and preferred less contemplation and more action. One version of the film had a running time of more than three hours. I think the rumor goes there was, was a four-hour cut. Four. Yeah. yeah. Producers Pitt and Ridley Scott and editors Dylan Tickner and Michael Kahn collaborated to assemble and test different versions of the film. Tickner left the production early to go and cut There Will Be Blood and was replaced by editor Curtis Clayton, who ultimately finished the production. Khan was brought in for several weeks as the studio's sort of go-to editor and the test versions did not receive strong scores from test audiences. They really couldn't figure out what to do with this thing. And despite the negative response, the audiences considered the performances of Pitt and Affleck to be some of their career's best. And, and here's something really interesting. Brad Pitt had it in his contract that the studio could not change the name of the film. So they had to keep that. Um, to give you, I guess, a sense now there, there were some dissenters on the critical side of things, but overall it's reception. And you kind of talked about that 75% rating. It, it fared well with a lot of critics. Mm -hmm. So the assassination of Jesse James was identified by the national board of review of motion pictures as one of the top 10 films of 2007. The board also named Casey Affleck as best supporting actor in the film. The San Francisco Film Critics Circle named this film as the best picture of 2007. And the circle also awarded Casey Affleck as best supporting actor for the film. 
Affleck goes on to get nominated for uh, best performance by an actor in a supporting role. And I believe Deacons gets nominated for best cinematography. He does. Yes. In the Academy Awards. Yes. For At sure. the Academy Awards. Yeah. Neither win. Neither win. Now, you don't have to know all the details on the mythos of Jesse James to appreciate the film. But I think it's important to know that Jesse James sort of had an interesting public persona for his time. So Jesse James owed a great deal of his fame to a guy named John Newman Edwards. He was an editor of the Kansas City Times. Now, John Newman Edwards was a former Confederate officer turned journalist who published multiple pro-James editorials, stories, and letters claiming to have been written by Jesse James. In actuality, a lot of historians debate whether James had anything to do with the letters or whether they were all Edwards' work and and just, um, you know, fun pulp stories for the time. Edwards, for example, pushed the myth that Jesse James was more like Robin Hood and stole from the rich and gave to the poor. But there's really no evidence of him ever giving any of the money away. Yeah, there's a guy in the... In the- in a bar scene here who is kind of singing folklore songs of about Jesse James. And there's a part where he talks about giving, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Yeah. I I mean, I'm sure there's tons of literature on this aspect of his legacy and how this one man's brutal crimes ended up being celebrated by a bunch of people in the public. Again, I think it's an important piece of information because it's one of the central topics of the film. And we'll probably talk about it in great length. But I do think it helps to understand, and, and the the movie alludes to it when you see Casey Affleck and sort of his box of treasures, you get to see like examples of those pulp magazines or stories. Yeah, they're basically like graphic novels to, you know, the mythos of Jesse James. Yeah, so you don't, you don't have to go out and like watch a bunch of documentaries or anything to appreciate this, but I think you get a little bit more out of the film if you understand that Jesse James was part of a crime family who who just basically did some really nasty, terrible things. However, there were other people out there that were taking these incidents and turning it into, you know, pulp fiction and these glorified stories. And his public persona was incredibly different than what he was as a real life person. Yeah. Yeah. I- I- interesting point here is like our childhood homes or where areas where we grew up. Jesse James was in those areas. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Kansas. And he spent a lot of times in Kansas and a lot of time in Kentucky. So, yep, that's right. Uh, okay. And I believe they go to Baltimore in this movie too. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. I just real curious and we may have maybe alluded or hinted to it, but sing comes out in 2007. Obviously it does really well with the critics. It only gets released in 300 theaters. I mean, why did it bomb? Do you think it was just a combination of bad marketing, not getting into enough theaters or? Yeah, that being one, but I remember, I mean, and I'm sure you're the same way in 2007, like I was in to what films were coming out and who was in what, and I don't remember a lick of information about this. Um, And again, this is about like a historical events that were happening in a state where I was living. And so I would have thought, Oh, this is going to be, you know, a huge film, but I just, I I never heard a word about it. And I I just, I don't understand that. Cause we talk about 
you know, if it costs 30, they spend another 30 on marketing. I don't think they spent $30 million on marketing in this because I didn't, I don't remember a thing, seeing a thing on this. Um, I just remember the only reason I knew that it was a movie was like, I saw it on a lot of top 10 lists for 2007. I was like, what is this Jesse James film with Brad Pitt? Like I I had no (laughs) idea. And then at the time I'm like, Brad Pitt playing an outlaw. I don't know about that. Um, yeah, it's just a weird thing. Like it's 300 theaters. Like no one knows it's coming out. It's got a really intimidating, um, runtime. Of course, you know, we say that and then we talk about Marvel films and they're all two thirty now. Hell, yeah, the new spider, I mean, the new, it's different. It's different. It's it. Like, 2007 is, very, is different than 2023. Like I, I think people have a tolerance for, for run times. I don't know if this whole binge watching and Netflix has, has created this tolerance for people being able to sit in a chair longer. Mm. It, it, some, somebody way smarter from a sociology perspective could probably pinpoint the year that said, Oh, from here on, you know, people would tolerate things over two hours, et cetera. But for 2007 prestige films could have that two and a half hour plus runtime. Mm-hmm. But you know, your, your big action extravaganzas, they, they weren't, they weren't crossing that two hour limit. No. And of course we grew up with Canon films. That was like, if your movie's over 90 minutes, it is too long. But oh, um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's just a combination of a lot of things. I, I just, I, I, I was trying to think back to, to 2007 and I was like, yes, I remember chomping at the bit to be day one of there will be blood. And then the next day going to see no country and just completely never even noticing that this was even a thing. Um, yeah, I oh, it's unfortunate. I'm like you. I remember Brad Pitt hearing Brad Pitt working on a Western about Jesse James. That was it. And then when award seasons came around, it was like, wow, that thing came out this year. I don't remember a thing about it. Now, this time period. But think, then all the talk was about Casey Affleck then, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and then it wasn't a few years later until I think I run across the Blu-ray and I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I've been wanting to watch this pick it up. I don't know about you. I'm one that at any point in time, somebody says, Hey, there's a Western playing in the theater. I really want to see it on the big screen, Mm -hmm. but I think I'm, I'm one of the rare Americans who want to do that. I think in this market, people are okay with Westerns as long as they don't look like a Western. So take no country from old men. I mean, critical success did really well at the box office. It's pretty much a Western, but it doesn't look like a Western. Yeah. Well, and you throw in Roger Deakins there too. And you're like, yeah, I got to see this thing in the theater. Yeah. But I, but I also think the studio may have been right too, that audiences probably wanted more action because the traditional Western does have that. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause mm-hmm. you know, you, you talk Westerns, everybody kind of thinks, well, maybe the John Wayne stuff or, uh, and, and 310 to Yuma was released earlier that month and it did okay. I mean, it, it was a, it was a good hit for Lionsgate. I think that released it, but it was also probably an indicator of how this film was going to play out. If it was going to go in the entire different spectrum and say, not a lot of violence in it. And, um, I mean, this is not an action film. It's a straight up drama, right? Well, and then you think about like true grit comes out what 2010. Mm -hmm. And I know that was a huge film, but that has Matt Damon at the time and, and is true. Grit's way more action oriented. Um, and you got the Coens on that too. So it's like, it's a, it's a, 
different thing, but like Western, the modern Western isn't a huge genre anymore. I think true gets probably the, is that the last big American Western? I don't know. I mean, when you think about it, Westerns that have action set pieces or enough action in them, I think they go down with the public really well. But if you're going to do a period piece, Western drama, or even a thriller, I don't think it's going to set well with the general audience. Um, and then I think the other misstep on this is it's not being released in award season. September is not award season. Yeah, you, you mentioned this. Yeah. And the title, I mean, I'll say it that the, the title gives out the, gives off this art house vibe. And yep. I think people would stay away from that. It's very pretentious. Like if you call this thing, the assassination of Jesse James, I think that's different, but then yeah. you got to add in by the coward, Robert Ford. And it just, well, and then you kind of spoil the film as well. Like there's no, you go into the film knowing at some point in time, Bob Ford is going to kill Jesse James. So if you didn't know that the film, the title spoils, spoils it really. No, it's true. I mean, you're like, I don't have to see the film. I read the title. I know what happens. <laughs> I know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into that title. I think it's really interesting, but no, I, this one just on, on paper, I don't know. It feels like it was destined to bomb. And what? And I mean, I think the studio knew that after. I think after it was done, and they're trying to edit it and trying to figure it out. It's like maybe you should have figured all that stuff out before you spent the thirty million dollars. But you know, Brad Pitt's behind it. His production company's behind it. You got Casey Affleck, who's not really a big star at the time, but you got some other character actors that are good in there. Man, it's just. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how this was ever going to be a success. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't think a lot of people talk about this film now at all. I I think this is one of those that when you talk about films in 2007, they will talk about, there will be blood. They will talk about no country for, for old men. And rightfully so. Those are masterpieces. I, I agree. But I think you would be hard pressed to put this film in front of somebody and say, hey, let's watch this. It has Brad Pitt, has Casey Affleck, has Jeremy Renner. I think people look at the title. You would look at the movie poster. I mean, it's two guys standing in a field with this gorgeous backdrop. And coupled with that title, I think a lot of people would kind of pick up on the, oh, wow, this is going to be an endurance test to get Mm -hmm. through it. Well, I mean, I'm just looking at it. There would be Bloods Runtime. 158 minutes. So it's two minutes shorter, but no one ever <laughs> complains that that movie is too long. So, you know, it, I think, I think that complaint of like a film is too long. It's just like, if you don't like it and it's too long, then that's the problem with it. It's like, Oh, I got to sit through this thing and it's two and a half hours and I don't like it. It's too long. But if you enjoy something like staying with those characters for two hours and 30 minutes is a treat. Oh, well, Hey, look, it, it, time is relative. Yeah, you you can be in a movie and you can feel the two and a half hours, or you can be in a movie that's two and a half hours and you go, oh wow, that felt like an hour, like it, mm-hmm. it was just a roller coaster ride. So, um, I I really want to jump into this. So let's take a quick break, and I I want to have a fun filled um, sharing of thoughts on this art how western. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Time for refreshment. Refreshment. For your enjoyment, there's hot, fresh popcorn, tempting, delicious hot dogs, and so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. (laughs) 
remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. Clint Eastwood is back, and he's burning at both ends, if you can take it. Clint Eastwood is the man with no name. He triggered a whole new style in adventure for a fistful of dollars. Get three coffins ready. And when he came back for a few dollars more, the man in black was waiting. A walking arsenal who uncoils, strikes, and kills. Simple. Savage. Clint Eastwood. A fistful of dollars. Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, for a few dollars more. Both are in color from United Artists. Entertainment from Transamerica Corporation. Both are rated M. Each is better than the other. Brad, halfway through, uh, we've been, you know, full disclosure before we get into talking about this film, <clears throat> you and I've had some voice issues, um, probably the last week or so. Yes. We've had some air quality issues going on. So I've, I've, I've had some really bad voice, but I think I sound a little bit better. I went back to listen to our three year show and I was like, man, I sound like I smoked about 800 cigarettes before we started recording. So yes. I apologize. No, uh, I think this is the week where mine's a little bit wonky and mine was self-induced by staying out till three, 4 a.m. a couple nights in a row in Ocean City. Um, so I apologize. Uh, but you know what? Summer's here. Y- you got to celebrate. So hopefully, hopefully the voice keeps going. Choice on that white boy summer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Surfing and picking up the babes. Radical. Anyways. Oh, my God. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. You picked this film. You slapped another long runtime on me after three hours of Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. Why this one? I, I Before you share your thoughts, why, why this one? Well, I had remember seeing it uh, again. It was after all the top 10 lists came out. Mm-hmm. And at the time I had the Netflix, Hey, put this film in your queue. We'll send you a disc in the mail. And I got it. And of course I was much younger than, and then I watched it and I have seen it one other time since. And I was like, I need to revisit it now as a 40 year old man and see how it has aged with me. So it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, I want to revisit it. I know it's a bomb. Let's do it for the show. Cause I don't think a lot of podcasts really talk about it either. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to go do a search on the internet to find out outside of its theatrical release when it came out, how many people have really talked about this thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what'd you think of it? I mean, this is your third view then. Yeah, it's probably my third. Um, and, and I, 
when I started it, I know you and I were like, you know, gosh, it's another two hour and 40 minute film. Are you going to split it up or whatever? And I was like, well, I'm going to start it and see what happens. And I started it. And then the next thing I know credits, I was like, holy shit, man, that two hours and 40 minutes went by. We did have that debate. I think we were both uh, must've forgot the runtime and it became a, are you splitting it up? Are you watching it in one setting? And I think we both agreed we're going to split it up just because of time constraints. But for both of us, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. And, um, I was completely in awe throughout this whole film. The score is amazing. Yes. The cinematography is some of the best cinematography I've ever seen in a film. Casey Affleck's performance in this is one of the best performances. Like everyone looks so sickly and depressed and it's just like that 1880s looks like it's so hard to live in and everyone just looks so disheveled and it's awesome but i'm like good lord i would be dead in four minutes because i can't even <laughs> walk outside without my hour it looks nothing me. like that oregon trail video game oh no, no. oh no yeah. oh no um brad pitt is as you know jesse james like there's a moment where he starts laughing and it's like, he turns on like the Tyler Durden inside of him, Um, you know, and then you have all these other side characters and it's just about like Jesse learning information about other people trying to get him, And then him kind of deciding if he's going to kill people. Like it's kind of a really simple plot, but you see a lot of guys riding horses from one location to the next. But while you're doing that, Everything looks beautiful. The score plays throughout. It's so melancholy and like this whole thing, this whole movie is so sad and it just kind of lived in and dirty. And I really loved like every second of it. I was surprised like the first 40 minutes go by and I'm like, holy shit. Like where did the time go? And we're just kind of introducing characters. Um, and again, like, I don't know if I can remember, well, I mean, we see films all the time that are performance based, but just some of these performances are just so good. Casey Affleck's character, Bob Ford is such a little weasel and just so sort of slimy at times. And then other times you kind of feel sorry for him. Um, I, I wrote down the term sympathetically creepy. Yes. Yeah. Because that character, that has to be one of the most interesting characters that I think you could talk about, especially on the context of, of the movies we've talked about, the other 156 movies. It is really rare to come across somebody that makes you so uncomfortable, but then at the end of the runtime, you almost feel a connection to them and and you sympathize with them to a certain degree, which is crazy to me. And like this whole thing has this weird, like Mark David Chapman vibe to it. You know, that the guy who shot John Lennon, like this guy who was obsessed with the Beatles ends up killing John Lennon. Like it like plays into that sort of deal. But I, I mean, even if no one said a word in this film and you just got to look at it, you would be in all the entire time. Like there are, there are just scenes where Pitt is just sitting in a rocking chair 
in the back of the house and it looks amazing. There's other times where he's standing and like the sun is setting and he's just standing there. And it's just, there's so many picturesque like moments in this where they just let characters just kind of breathe. And yeah, you can say that it's like slowly paced and all that stuff, but like all that stuff is deliberate and it, and it really helps kind of put you in the 1880s. And I think this is, easily one of the most underrated films we've done in our three years. Like oh, I, wow. Okay. It, it, yeah. I, I think if, if we're giving this thing a score, like this might be a 10 out of 10 for me. Really? Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, come on, man. It's like, it's, it's a goddamn pretentious Western. Like, of course I'm gonna, like <laughs> that's right up you know, your alley. <laughs> we like, like this and like, uh, uh, heaven's gate. It's like, they go hand in hand. Like I can see why both of them failed. But to me, they're both like the best examples of American Westerns you can get. And they both like look amazing, have a crazy soundtrack. The performances are great. Like they are mirror images of each other. So how do you, how do you, how would you sell this to your neighborhood? So I, I know you get a bunch of people over mm-hmm. at some point and, and you watch a film. How would you convince anybody I, to watch I couldn't, this thing? I couldn't. I, couldn't? I, I know I couldn't. No, okay. no, I couldn't sell them on a two hour and 40 minute Western. As good as it is, they they just they're not up for that. They're not up for it. But like we're gonna watch the new John Wick film, and it's like that's two hours and thirty minutes. But that's fine. But a two hour and forty minute western just is is a hard sell to your average guy. Is it a is it a better view by yourself than versus a group? I I turned this thing on. It was by myself, and literally just got just taken away with it, and and was just transported to uh, everywhere they go. And yeah, I I think uninterrupted, I think this is one of the best feelings I've ever had. Just me sitting, watching something, you know, it, it, it does feel like, I don't know, curling up with a good book by yourself next to the fireplace or something. Next to the fireplace. Yeah. While you're having a cigar and a whiskey, this is the film you would put on and you wouldn't want to be distracted by anybody around you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I totally get that vibe. Okay. But damn it. I think this, I mean, there will be blood will always be my favorite film of that year. This might be second now. Yeah. See no country for old men would be my favorite out of yeah. 07. Well, I mean, yeah, but like you put those three, like I'll take any three. I'll take one of the three. I don't care. Just give me one of those three. I think they're all amazing. And this one, I feel bad for never sticking up for, when over the last what 16 years I could have been saying, yeah, but also these essays of Jesse James. Okay. Uh, all right. So you're going to have to go on a long journey with me on this one. No, go ahead. I, Hey, this is one of the films that I've garnered more appreciation the more I watched it. And it, and I feel like it's one of those films that every time I watch it. I'll go back and read something about it and then just say, I got to revisit again and and take a look at it from that perspective. Uh, It's a really complex and layered film. So this time you'll steal my question because I've got a question for you. Okay. But you might steal it, but that's fine. Well, here's, here's something that just caught my eye and and I'm going to, I'm going to try and take you down my logic here. And I'm also going to say this. I'm not the first one to propose this but I don't see this being brought up 
outside of a few articles I've read, like most major reviewers don't talk about in this context, but hear me out. Okay. So Roger Ebert, I want to start there. He noted, quote, the curiously erotic dance of death between James and the mesmerized younger Ford. He said, finally, if Robert cannot be the lover of his hero, what would be more intimate than to kill him? And he notes that it has the space and freedom of classic Western epics where the land is so empty, it creates a vacuum demanding men to become legends. I love that quote. And I think it's one of the best. That's why Roger was the best. Yeah, absolutely. And and he really, I think, captures everything this film sort of embraces in terms of the Western genre. And when you read reviews of this film, you'll see lots of dialogue around its entry as a masterful representation of the Western genre. And in fact, a lot of critics use, uh, critics use the terminology, it's the best Western since Unforgiven. That's what you would read time and time again. But here's the thing. I don't think people talk about this film as one of the best American gangster films. If no country for old men is a Western in disguise, then the assassination of Jesse James is a gangster film disguised as an art house Western. Yeah, it's yeah, it's Bonnie and Clyde. Well, the movie that comes to mind is the mafia film, probably Goodfellas and the Godfather. So like this is going. Yes, yeah. keep going. If you think about it, like the mafia and classic storytelling are, are some of the best stories you can find out there in terms of film, right? And the mob can be portrayed as an insulated world where the character's behavior is determined almost entirely by the hierarchical structure or the rules of that environment. And and in essence, you, you basically get these films where duty takes precedence over any kind of self-reflection. So if you think about Goodfellas, and I'll start there, a lot of Ray Liotta's narration is explaining the rules and hierarchy of his environment and his actions are somewhat justified by the rules of the world he lives in. Now I know it's a little bit of an oversimplification of the film that that film has a bunch of layers too, but I just wanted to kind of point out how Scorsese uses the narration to frame the choices of his main characters. And there's not really choices. It's just, I got to do this because this is the code. This is the law of the land. And if you're going to live in this world, this this is what yeah. you do, and these are the consequences, right? Henry wanted to be a gangster, and what it took to be a gangster was what he did. Yep. So and once he was in there, he had to follow the rules as well. Yeah, and, and this is where I think Jesse James comes in. I think this film takes that mob story and concentrates on the introspective choices made by its two key characters, Jesse James and Robert Ford. It tries to understand why these characters make their choices and just don't explain the hierarchy or rules of living this gangster lifestyle. They mention it here and there, like this is what you do. If this person finds out he, this is what he's going to do, but it really concentrates on what's going through these guys heads and why they do what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. So Goodfellas is about criminals making choices and explaining it within the context of the mafia environment. Jesse James is about human beings making choices that put them against the law and make them criminals. And it supports the theory that people are not inherently good or evil, but are defined by their choices. 
And that definition is either applied internally or by society. And often the definition is at odds and rarely matches. And what what I'm basically saying is like what we see of ourselves is not what the world sees. And that plays out in this film. So the film is about a gang of criminals, a family gang of criminals, all related in some fashion, right? Yeah, in a literal sense, yes. Yes. Seems to be a perfect fit in the gangster genre, especially when you compare it against Goodfellas or The Godfather. So now when I watch this film, and I think I've seen this three or four times, the the first time I watched it, I, I did exactly, I think, what most critics do, and they compare it to the Western genre, and they say, okay, if you look at the just the cinematography the production and what it's doing for the Western genre itself and what it's saying just within the confines of that piece of storytelling, it's freaking amazing. But if you take a step back and go, well, if I were to watch Goodfellas and then I were to watch Jesse James, to me, that would make almost the perfect companion pieces to telling about, um, you know, the, what it is to be a gangster in America. And whereas one concentrates on the rules and the hierarchy, another one concentrates on the people that are making the choices in that hierarchy in that environment. Yeah, no, I like that comparison for sure. Yeah. I I mean, that's what I take away from this film now, but I mean, like you said, I don't, I don't think you can even do this film justice unless you talk about the performances, which you've hit on, right? Casey Affleck, um, Let's talk about Brad Pitt for a minute. Holy cow. I, I would say this is probably one of his best acting <laughs> jobs ever because yeah. it's really this unpredictability he brings in every scene. He goes from charming to psychopathic, even more so than I think the Tyler Durden character in Fight Club. And the transition here a lot of times is done with a simple look. And, and the scene that stands out to me that feels so charming yet menacing is when he stops by to have dinner towards the end of the film. And um, they're telling stories about Casey Affleck and, and, and he's getting upset because he's talking about how he used to look up to him and all these comparisons and how similarities and you're watching Brad Pitt's reaction and you can't tell if he's impressed or if he's just going to murder everybody in that room. Yeah. Yeah, the other the other scene I think that steals it is when he goes and sees Ed, and Ed's waiting for him, and he walks in there oh, and they have that yeah. conversation. That that to me is like the scene stealer, because um, again they just build up this tension, and then they cut away and you don't really know what happens. I mean, you you think you know, uh, but they revisit it later on in the film, and it kind of lets you see that it it plays out. But yeah, I think uh, this is up there with me with Pitt as like. Pretty, uh, I mean, it'd be hard to say because he's had a lot, but this one you look at it and say, in your obituary, this needs to be one of the first things they mention. That's a good point. I really do. I mean, I think when we go back and look at Brad Pitt as as an actor and sort of the prestigious career he's had, there, there's going to be a lot to talk about, but this one I think is going to bubble to the top. Like as time goes on, and if this thing ever finds a criterion release or something of that know, nature. Yeah. I would love this thing. needs a 4k release in the worst way ever. Oh, I agree hundred percent. And then, you know, all these supporting characters do an amazing job of filling out that world. But I got to tell you, I, 
<laughs> I don't want to tip my hat to the Sam Rockwell thing, but as much as I love confessions, I love moon. I, I almost am thinking this is one of my favorites. And, and after a few more viewings, it could be my favorite. Sam Charlie. Rockwell. Yeah. Charlie Ford is a great, great character. Kind of not as smart as his brother, but sees what's going on. Um, yeah. Stupid haircuts. <laughs> Well, I love the fact that he recognizes the tension. He has this empathy with everybody and he rest, he just recognizes the tension and he's always trying to deescalate the tension in the room through comedy, storytelling, um, butting up to people. And it's this nervous playfulness that is underpinned by all this paranoia. And I can't think of another actor who could do it the way that Sam does. I think he's yeah, freaking he also, brilliant in this. And he also plays it for like, so Bob is his brother, but he also loves Jesse. So he's like stuck in between these two guys. And even when he has a chance to sort of kind of pull Jesse in to, to make him like become maybe Jesse's number one guy. Yeah. Like he, he sticks up for Bob and he's, you know, he lies for Robert. And so, you know, you can see that difficulty on his face and, and then you can also see the paranoia in, in Jesse James, like when they walk away and they come back and he's like, you guys never leave again. You guessed for my permission. Like you can start seeing like these cracks starting to happen and yeah, it, it, builds tension so great <laughs> yeah that last you know you bring up a good point that last, that sequence that's towards the end with the three of them and watching just the tension just ratchet up a little bit more a little bit more ultimately to the shooting it, it's really a master class in creating this subtle thrill that builds up to this sort of explosive event and it's those three performances that make it work 100 percent yeah, and if if one of those is not good, it, it it feels off. But they're all three spectacular, so everything works to build that tension to basically not the final scene, but our our, our sort of our our resolution, if you will. Yes. Uh, now look, I I got to ask you the the Roger Deegan cinematography. We talked about it a little bit, and and I would go on record saying it's probably one of his best work. I know there was a lot of amazing contenders out there for that year, but um, I would love to revisit everything that got nominated that year and really find out if this statement is true, that that maybe he should have won for this one. But I got to ask you, do you, do you have a favorite sequence in this film in terms of just the composition, the shots, or or just visually what was happening? Yeah, well, and I kind of mentioned it. It's when Jesse is coming down to see Ed so there's a shot where you see Ed kind of in the foreground and you see a guy coming in the background over the hill. And it's just like, you, you know, it's Jesse coming to see somebody. And I, I just think, I just think that's mad. But I also, the one, I guess the one shot I think this is, is crazy and it's simple, but it's with Jesse sitting in that chair kind of, in the tall grass and just sitting there. Like it's a simple shot, but you got to know what you're doing there. And yeah, I think that one is crazy. And we also should mention Deacon's also shot no country for old men in the same year. Yeah. So, you know, it's 2007. Pretty good. He uh, also shot true grit too. So yeah, I, the guy's amazing. Um, 
I will say the sequence that I will always rewatch is the train sequence in the beginning. Oh yes. Yes. So I mean, with, even, he, with him standing on the tracks and the train coming towards like, just, I don't know how they did it, but you have, I, I know they had to do something with the light or put a light on the train to really light up the entire environment. Right. But you get this train coming down the tracks and as it's going, you see the lights and the shadows move across the people that are hiding sort of oh, in the wearing woods the inglorious bastard bags over their head. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and, yeah. or sorry, the uh, Django and chain bags. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you almost get this sepia tone, that old time photograph mm-hmm. imagery coming through it as the lights are hitting everything. Yeah. You're going to see the horse gallop like around the thing. Yeah. It is amazing. Even if you just go, well, that movie's okay. You cannot deny that shot is probably one of the best shots ever committed to film in, in just American history. In my opinion. Yeah. I actually, you know what? Now that you say that, I think, I think you're right. That shot where it's looking through the windows with the lights and you can see all the guys in the trees is, is masterful. And you, you get that with deacons and not many other people. Yeah. I mean, just the use of the, the light with the shadows, what gets highlighted, the muted colors, but then when there's flashes of colors, it really stands out. It's freaking amazing. It it's just uh I, I'm I, I uh I don't know what to say. I'm speechless when I think about that shot. Yeah. Um I love the blurred effect around the edges that he uses during the narration in the transition sequences. It gives the film a nostalgic feel. And I really think like when you're looking at those images, it feels like you're thumbing through a really old photograph book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and seeing, you know, pictures from that time frame and outside of the production value and everything that occurs within the costuming, the sets and everything else, it's really that camera work and how he's using his lenses that set the tone as much as, again, the costume design and production and everything else. It's yeah. Yeah. And what, 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 I mean, yeah. And it, and it, okay. And that whole thing just gets amplified at the end when you get this narration talking about after Jesse's death, how they display the body, how it's being toured around, et cetera. And again, if, if we're kind of ranking shots, the train sequence is number one, but the sequence with Jesse's body and then seeing his wife to the side, just, just look, she has this horrifying look like what is going on while all these people are around taking pictures. And it's just like a circus, right? Yeah. And, and the way he frames all of those events within that shot with her kind of at the center, um, it, it looks like just, um, what, did, what is the painting with the guy, the screaming, you know what I'm talking about? The scream? The scream, yeah. It looks like just a a Western interpretation of the scream, and it, it just sticks in your head. Like, that sequence burns in your head, and it's horrifying, in my opinion. Well, yeah. Also, you're like, God, they displayed his body for people to come and see like he was some sort of, you know, circus freak or something like that. Uh, let's talk about the ending. You want to talk okay. about the ending? Sure. Well, not the ending. Let's talk about the the actual assassination, I guess. Not the ending. Not the ending ending. But the end of Jesse James. The end of Jesse James. So Brad Pitt's reading a newspaper article about one of his gang members surrendering. And I think at that moment he knows everything's closing in, right? Dick Little. 
Dick Little. So his paranoia is at an all-time high. He knows it, it's either going to be the Pinkertons or somebody from his gang, possibly the two gentlemen in the next room, are, are going to turn him in or kill him, right? And he, I think, rather than be captured by the Pinkertons, he rests mm-hmm. his gun on the sofa, goes to adjust a picture, and then he ends up being murdered by Robert Ford. Yes. What What did you so think shot about in the this back. sequence? I was thinking, and I think you were kind of hinting at this too, that for him, the worst fate is to be captured by the Pinkertons. The best is he's shot in the back of the head and killed. Cause I don't think he thinks he can get out of the situation that he's in. And so, I mean, cause he gives the, I think when you go and you say this picture is dusty, I'm going to turn my back on you. You're basically giving yourself up. Um, knowing that if he's going to do it and you think he is at that point in time, you've basically said, I'm giving up. Okay. I, I'm going to propose something else. Okay. Propose. Okay. How about you, you can, you can view him as accepting his fate and, and doing exactly that. I would rather kind of go out in this scenario versus go to jail, get captured by the Pinkertons, et cetera. What if it was a little bit more malevolent? What if it was sort of his last act of violence? So, so think about it from this perspective by turning his back on the Ford brothers and knowing that they will shoot him in the back. Does he in fact assassinate their character, their character? Yes. They, he, basically brands them as cowards as soon as he turns his back. Yeah. And so Jesse and both Robert make a choice in that instant. And so the outcome of those choices are kind of explored in the conclusion because I had always thought, okay, this is Brad accepting or or Jesse James accepting, (laughs) you know, what was going on. and, And I'd rather go out this way, but the more I watch this and the more I even read other people, there's so many articles just on that sequence and even the play of events that occur afterwards. I I read a really interesting article where they say the title of the film, the assassination of Jesse James by the, the coward Robert Ford is, is actually just a red herring because the assassination that's actually occurring is of Robert Ford and his character. Like that's yes. kind of what the film the is character assassination. Yeah. Yes, and if, for sure. And if you think about like the sequences that happen after, you know, after that, it does beg the question, like, is this, is this Jesse James giving up or is this Jesse James doing his last act of aggression, knowing what society will do to these brothers? Yeah. And he was ultimately right. Yeah. Cause you, this, <laughs> the general public's reaction to Jesse James and Jesse James knows what the public thinks of him, right? Mm-hmm. It it's very mixed. He's in, he's in books, and there's been basically stories. He's like, yeah, that's not true, but he know. I mean, he, it's not like he's going out and telling everyone if they're not true. He likes being this myth of a man. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> he knows it exists. He's not doing anything to dispel it. And in fact, I'm sure he uses that to his advantage. Yeah, he uses it to his advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people come to want to be in his gang because of it. Yeah. And and then you get this, I don't know, this last chapter in the film that is so interesting that after the assassination occurs 
and and you see everybody's reaction to it. Then you have Robert Ford and his brother reenacting as, as a stage play. Yeah, over eight hundred times. <laughs> over eight hundred times, which is just ludicrous. And they're saying at this point in time, as Robert Ford's in his twenties, he's just as famous as the president. He's just as famous as Jesse James ever did. Then you get Charlie's death. You get Robert Ford's intimate confession towards the end of his life, mm-hmm. which I think is really touching and haunting. That's that's where you really start to understand that fear motivated him more than anything. And then Robert's death, it's like, well, of course that was going to happen. And so as that last chapter plays out, you you almost think, okay, maybe there's something going on with those choices. Like I always thought it was a little bit with Jesse James' character, why would he do what he did? But if you look at it from the prism of that's sort of his last act of violence against the two brothers, it, it sort of makes sense. Yeah, because if if you think about it, if it wasn't, the film would have ended after his assassination. It would have been him being shot in the back of the head, credits. Yeah. But they don't do that. They go on to show you that what happens to Bob Ford isn't what he expected it to be, which was going to lead me to one of the questions I had for you. Shoot. Um, yeah. yeah. So this this got me thinking about having – so essentially Bob is was growing up, was obsessed with Jesse James. And, mm-hmm. you know, like he had this – at some point in time, the turn was – this life goal was I'm going to be the one – to kill Jesse James. And what, when he does it, was that his it, life goal? No, not like a- after he like turns in, gets turned in and all this stuff. It has oh, to work. Yeah, yeah. Like, like his, his sort of mission becomes killing Jesse James before basically he kills Bob. Um, but you start to think about like your, your goals in life. And when he does it, I don't think, I don't, see it as something as fulfilling as he thought it was going to be. And it just got me thinking about like, have you, does this film also make you think about like, I've had, you know, I wanted to do X, Y, and Z in my life, or I actually did this thing in my life that I thought was going to be the most fulfilling thing I could ever do. And once I did it, it really wasn't as fulfilling as I thought it was going to be. And I, I started thinking about that sort of aspect of life where you think, if I can just get here, if I can just do this, that's going to be the turning point in my life. And everything after that's going to be great. And Bob does that here. And it basically is the worst thing he could ever have done because uh, then again, he goes places and people call him coward and there's songs about him being a coward. And ultimately he gets killed because people love Jesse James and not Robert Ford. Um, so, so this just got me thinking about reflecting on life and, and you know, just like, man, if I could, ju- if I got this job or if I did this, life would be great. And then you get there and it's like, mm, it's not as, it's not as good as I thought it was going to be. That's kind of what this film makes me think about as well. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I, th- I think I have this reaction, like the, the, the films that I, I love or cherish the most is as soon as the credits roll. I, I really feel something mm-hmm. and, and you can be self-reflective and, and I got to be honest, it, this isn't like biker boys where I'm like crying or something because <laughs> that father son connection really gets to me. But this, this overwhelming wave of sadness hits me because I, I do see exactly what you're talking about. 
because I, I think here you have a character that is trying to attain something. And I think even Brad Pitt makes a comment towards the beginning. Like, I don't, I don't know if you want to be me or I don't know if you want to kill me or something yes. along those yep. lines. And what's amazing is if, if you take a step back and kind of reflect on what this movie might be saying in terms of fame, infamy, chasing down that goal, whatever it is and how it transforms whenever it's external and whenever you're trying to live up to some societal goal or, or something that um, becomes like a thing or tangible money, notoriety, fame, whatever it is, you put all the blood, sweat and tears into it. You could achieve it, but then it is probably empty if you were just looking for the money, if you're just looking mm-hmm. for the fame and notoriety. And, and you see that towards the end. I mean, he's bragging about killing one of the most infamous gunslingers uh, in the nation, reenacts it 800 times, and then he just looks so sad and empty. And then he finally meets a connection with a woman, confesses all this stuff to him, and then, then he's murdered himself. So I think the thing that comes to mind for me is it's a constant reminder that in my youth, and if we want to apply it to like the corporate setting, um, I've spent a good chunk of my time chasing job titles and how, how high mm-hmm. can I claim the, you know, climb up the hierarchy. And, uh, at, at the end of the day, at some point it, the light switch just, you know, flipped and it was, Hey, maybe you should be chasing the experiences versus the job title or the pay. And you'll be much happier um, you'll find a better work-life balance, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and life becomes a little bit more fulfilling. And, and as a result of doing that and taking the mentality, I actually found that there were, there was more opportunities. There were, there were more promotions or whatever within the corporate world by just concentrating, not on how much money am I going to make at the end of the year or what's my job title going to be at the end of the year. Or even, even when a, you know, the company comes to me and goes, Oh, we want you to do this extra thing. And if I were to sit there and go, what are you going to pay me extra for it? Or, <laughs> Does this mean I get a promotion going the different route and going, Oh, that's more experience. That's more things that I can do to help out. That's, that's more things I can contribute. It's opened more doors than I've ever had. Mm-hmm. But this movie makes me think of a time when I was like Robert Ford and chasing down everybody's opinions, being liked by everybody, wanting some type of notoriety, et cetera, and how empty that makes you feel once you get there. And even some of the sacrifices you make to get it. So I think this movie, if if you let it in and you really embrace all of those layers, um, it it's really saying something about the human condition, which uh, again most movies don't do anymore at this level. Yeah, the in- intellectual part of this it was also really interesting for me, just like like those aspect of it, and then the way they speak and like all the guys like they're not well educated, but they speak well. And, and, and it's, it's a fascinating movie because like you said, like there's this reflection after I was done with it that I didn't expect to happen. And I just started thinking about that question about fulfillment and just how, again, we think we get to this point, we get to this top of this ladder or we get somewhere and we're going to be, Maybe life isn't great right now, but once we get to that point, then life is going to be better. And then you get to that point and it's not. And then you move the goalpost down a little bit further and a little bit. And at some point in time, you have to say, maybe I 
am, am satisfied with where I am now. Cause if I keep moving the goalposts, I'm just, you know, never going to be happy, but yeah, like I, I was not expecting when I turned this on on Saturday by the end of the night, thinking about choices I've made in my <laughs> life and you know, what makes me the happiest and, and, and things like that. No, it's, it's, I mean, that's the cool thing. I, I think that's really special about some of these filmmakers and even screenwriters. I mean, there's something about you get the guy to direct the film. That's also going to write the film. His messaging comes through, I think a lot more loud and clear than somebody taking somebody else's work and trying to film it. Right. It's, it's just weird. Cause I would not have, I would not. Cause I didn't, I saw this before killing them softly, but I don't feel like I was that introspective after I saw killing them softly, but to be fair, I haven't seen it in a while. So maybe I do need to, but this one to me, out of his films that he's done is the one that really hits you the most like blonde. You're not getting any of this stuff. It's just weird how this one is, is kind of the outlier of his filmography when it comes to really sort of punching you in the gut about the meanings and stuff like that. Well, I, I wonder if you read the book from 83 and something about it resonated to him about his own experiences. Yeah, that could be. Because if you think about it, I mean, it takes him seven years ago from Chopper to this one. So as a writer and director, he probably finds some kind of content that I'm, that I'm sure makes him introspective. And he tries to articulate that in this medium, right? Mm-hmm. And what I love about this film, what I absolutely adore, is you can look at it as a Western. And you may say, well, it's maybe a slow burn Western it does have some very tense moments and it's extremely accurate for its time period. Do you find this slow? I'm, I'm thinking I don't, but I, I feel like the average moviegoer um, is probably going along that Joel silver methodology of like every 15 minutes, something you gotta have action, some, yeah. I got to have something loud happen. Yeah. Right. And, and it doesn't even have to be action. It could be, there's gotta be some very dramatic moment. Somebody, somebody really has to up the ante. This, this isn't that film. Um, it's very introspective. And then when the violence does occur, it is shocking. And there's also, you know, we haven't really talked about this. There is an underlying comedy of, I don't know what you would call it, like comedy of errors or awkward comedy. And what I'm thinking about is the sequence, um, spoiler alert, Jeremy Renner's character, uh, John Ford or, or Casey Affleck actually shoots him. And he's not totally dead yet, but he's laying on the floor, kind of still breathing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, John Ford goes and says, Hey, come upstairs. If you want to say his goodbyes. <laughs> and there's this whole exchange of, well, Hey, such and such sure is going to miss you. <laughs> and it's so awkward and you almost want to laugh. But at the same time, you're like, this is, I feel awkward for laughing. If I were to laugh, how this thing's playing off because I just didn't expect it to go down that way. That yeah, little sequence I, I, afterwards. I chalked that up to like in the life expectancy of these guys was not that long. Yeah. Even the general public. I mean, you're probably, I, I don't know what the life expectancy was in the late 1800s, but it couldn't have been much over 50. So, you know, death is all around these people and and I'm, I'm sure it's it's just another day where someone is dying. It, it is, but I think there I think there are some intentional comedic beats that occur, um, and then there are some transgressive elements that pop up when they're talking about you know the rape of the Indian woman um, yeah. towards the beginning of the film. Well, then there's also an illusion that uh, Dick Little like might have 
might be a child molester. Like when yeah, he's playing with the girl on the swing, I was really starting to feel awkward about that. But what's amazing about this film is like, you can look at it from the Western perspective. I think, I think it really stands strong as an American gangster film. Mm-hmm. No, when um, you brought that up, I, I was kind of mad at myself for not thinking about that. But but what's crazy is you can go back and say, well, I'm seeing some comedic elements peppered through. There's a little bit of transgressive characters, maybe story elements that pop up. There's this whole introspective aspect um, and then even commentary on society, fame, infamy. It's all there. But what I really love about this thing is it doesn't matter how you attack it or come at it or what you walk away from it, but you'll always be dissecting and pulling this thing apart a couple of days after it's viewing. And then even for me, I I find that the quiet and contemplative moments resonate with me more as I get older than when I did maybe seeing it a decade ago. Yeah. I, uh, you know, stuff hits you at when you're at different stages in your life. And, and this one, hit me way, way different than it did in 2007, 2000. I probably saw this in 2008. Yeah. Cause I was way younger. I was 25 years old. So, you know, a lot of this stuff about life I wasn't ready for. So, you know, maybe it teaches you watch films at, at different points in your life and it might, it, it might resonate at a different level. Yeah. I mean, Hey, look, the thing I appreciate the most after, I mean, you said we're starting season four, right? So that's, we're on year four now. We mm-hmm. started year four. Is if I go back and look at the the 156 movies, we, we always do a, a good job of, um, I, I think about the first two we picked. We did Children of Men, which I think is what you picked for number one. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, let's talk about Coneheads. So you can take you can take film. And the cool thing about doing this is we can sit there and go. Well, and I think there was a lot of crossover like, themes and children of men and Coneheads. There was. Yeah. I mean, Coneheads surprisingly had some, um, social commentary in there that I didn't remember. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but the great thing about doing this is you, you can take any kind of film and we can, we can talk about Coneheads, Samurai Cop, whatever it is, pick, pick any of the fun ones. Um, and we can have a blast talking about it and talking about, um, the story, the characters, some of the ludicrous moments of it, how it makes us, you know, laugh, feel, get us angry or anything of that nature. But then you come across these films and then you can totally from a, um, I don't know, from a hobby perspective, say, well, talking about films offers so much. I mean, you can talk about it from a technical aspect. You can talk about it, how it makes you feel. You can talk about the themes, the commentary, everything else. Because when people ask, you know, you, you talk to people and you go, well, you do a podcast about movies. They're like, what? It's like, yeah, but it, it's the coolest thing because depending on the, what movie you're going to talk about, there, there could be tons of layers to it. And it could take yeah, you down it's a, a whole path different you conversation. didn't know you want. Or you could talk about a movie that's so terrible that you're just, I mean, the Breaking Bads are fun for me because watching you squirm is awesome. Um, but yeah, there's something awesome about talking about bad films, right? But then you run across this one and I love how you can just say, hey, w- what do you want to tackle with this thing? This thing is a huge present that you'll take hours unboxing and there's so many things inside that you can play with um, in, in terms of its themes or stories or the technical aspects. Uh, th- there's a lot to unpack with this one. And and it's why, it's why I love talking about movies. Yeah. I was surprised when we were talking about this with Sammy, that he said that this one wasn't one that he really liked. Cause to me, this is a Sammy ass film. So <laughs> I'm curious to see when we talk to him about it, if he rewatched it, if he dug it or not. 
I, I think sometimes like to me, this is one of those films. Um, if I were to sit down and watch it with a, just even three or four people, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much as watching it alone. I think there's something about watching it alone. It's a lonely film in a way. It, it is, but the, but there's something about being in that world and being enveloped by it and, and totally having zero distractions around you and concentrating on every little nuance that's happening with either in the performance or where the camera's going that makes me appreciate this as a solo viewing more so than a group viewing. Because I know we talk about some films especially the bad ones where we're like, oh, you didn't enjoy this because you watched it on your own. Totally yeah, you gotta get watch that, with right? other people, yeah. yeah. This is one of those movies that if Tabitha or the kids were like, hey, I know you talked heavily about this film, um, I would go, yeah, you should go watch that. I, I think you would really enjoy it. I don't want to watch it with you. If I'm going to watch it again, <laughs> I'm probably going to watch it by myself. It's weird. Which I will definitely watch this again. Uh, I will too. Sooner rather than later. I am, you know, we've, we've been on this track record. We talk about something. I mean, we, we just did the VHS files podcast on, uh, um, last dragon, last dragon. And now Sony's like, Hey, there's a 4k coming out this year. I'm hoping that not a bomb magic is working this time. And somebody announces a 4k release of this thing. Yeah. Oh man. Um, you got any other final thoughts on this? I don't, uh, I just want to reiterate. I, I, I definitely think this is one of the most underrated films we've done in our three years. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I think if anybody has ever been on the fence about it, it deserves a rewatch. It really does. I actually think it deserves a rewatch with you maybe doing a little bit of uh, homework and reading some really thoughtful, critical analysis of the film and then go watch it. If you can find any of the articles that really dissect it as an American gangster film, I, th I think that'll give you sort of a new take on the story and then how it's being played out. And especially if, if you go and watch Goodfellas and then watch this one, I, I think there's an interesting contrast happening, but it's definitely worth you taking the two hours and 40 minutes and, and revisiting this thing or seeing for it for sure. the first time. If, mm -hmm. if you love film, you, I, I think you owe yourself to go visit this one. Um, that's all the data. It's all the information, you know, what we should be doing right now. Right, Brad? Yeah, let's uh let's pump in those quarters to the robot and see what we get spit out. All right, here we go. He had his little newsy hat on when I was putting in the data, just to let you know, Troy. Oh Lord. I, I don't know where this thing goes half the time, but let let's see what rabbit hole we go down this week. Here we go. Extra. Extra. Read all about it. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. A gripping tale of outlaws and betrayal. In the annals of American history, there have been tales of outlaws and desperados that captivate the imagination of the masses. And now, dear readers, we present to you a remarkable moving picture that delves deep into the heart of one such legendary saga, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The year is 1882, a time when lawlessness and the wild frontier cast long shadows over the land. Director Andrew Dominic has skillfully brought to life this harrowing tale, based on Ron Hansen's novel of the same name. The film opens a window into a tumultuous chapter of American history, where the lines between hero and villain blur, and the consequences of one's actions reverberate throughout eternity. 
At the heart of this cinematic masterpiece lies the extraordinary portrayal of Jesse James, the notorious outlaw, by the incomparable Brad Pitt. Pitt's performance is nothing short of mesmerizing, as he captures the essence of James' complex character with a brooding intensity that transcends the screen. Every glance, every movement, is infused with a palpable sense of danger, as if the outlaw's very soul is laid bare before our eyes. But it is the exceptional talent of Casey Affleck that truly astounds, as he embodies the role of the treacherous Robert Ford. Affleck masterfully portrays the conflicted nature of Ford, an enigmatic figure torn between admiration and envy, teetering on the precipice of notoriety. Through his nuanced performance, Affleck reveals the inner turmoil of a man haunted by his own actions, forever branded as the coward who extinguished a legend. The film's visual aesthetics are a testament to the director's vision. Roger Deakins' cinematography transports us to a bygone era, with its evocative use of light and shadow. Every frame is a work of art, each composition seemingly torn from the pages of a classic western painting. The sweeping landscapes and dimly lit interiors serve as a backdrop for the moral landscape, where loyalty and betrayal collide with devastating consequences. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is a narrative tour de force, punctuated by contemplative moments and profound silences that allow the viewer to immerse themselves fully in the psychological intricacies of the characters. Dominic's masterful direction weaves a web of tension, building toward the inevitable climax with a slow, deliberate pace that mirrors the very essence of a ticking time bomb. Wow. Wow. You know, when it, when it says powering down, I feel like it's, it's actually not listening anymore when it doesn't, I, f I feel like the AI is still listening. <laughs> it's still listening. Don't worry. All right. Not 1,886. <laughs> <laughs> Desperatos. Desperatos. I love, Desperatos. I love that. Uh, hey, before we get to listener feedback, should we just go Are we going to say if it's a bomb or not? Oh yeah, we should. Shouldn't we? That's the We've been doing the this for, yeah, look, it's already just it's, going it's, downhill. Um, it's, it's not a bomb, Troy. There you go. Yeah, it's not a bomb. I, how could it, how could it possibly be a bomb? Look, people, you got it wrong in 2007. <laughs> Let's correct this issue. Please go back and watch that thing. All right. Uh, what are we going to talk about next week, Brad? Yeah. So we're going to talk about an action comedy film from 1995 starring one Wesley Snipes and one Woody Harrelson. And I believe Jennifer Lopez is in this movie as mm -hmm, well. Mm -hmm. It is Money Train, Choo Choo. Yeah, it's get under two, on, it's under two hours, I think. Track. Right? I believe it is. Yeah. So th this is interesting. Um, there has been somebody who's I think been listening from day one. Uh, is it Valencia? Mm -hmm. is that how you yes. say your name? Okay. Yep. She, uh, we were having a conversation kind of going back and forth and, uh, mentioned money train and it was like, oh yeah, I, I had totally forgot about that because it came, I think after white man can't jump was sort of a hit for Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. Right. I believe that is the timeline is correct on that. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, man, th this is a perfect example of somebody who listens to the show and uh, kind of offers up that, hey, do you remember this film? 
I remember it because I had the soundtrack and I love the soundtrack and I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I have the soundtrack too. And, and I loved it as well, <laughs> but I totally forgot about yeah, the white man can't jump is 1992. Oh, okay. Yeah. But th this is a, a great film to kind of talk about because, um, it, it's one that I think everybody remembers white man can't jump. I don't know if enough people remember this one and I think it'd be a fun revisit. Plus it gives me an excuse to break out the old CD and listen to the soundtrack again. <laughs> so that one's for you. I haven't you. seen this in a long, long time. I, I haven't either. I remember seeing it in the theater, um, and and when she brought it up, I'm like, well, yeah, we got to talk about this one. Uh, that's going to be a ton of fun. Woody Harrelson graduated of Hanover College, not too far from where I live now. Nice. Nice. Uh, first off, before I get into some feedback, just a, a quick shout out to everybody who has left some comments and been engaged on the Grindhouse episode. It was a lot of fun to see people after listening to the show um, reach out to us and even on social media posts and go, hey, I think I'm going to go revisit that now. Mm -hmm. So Lots of those. Lots of people revisiting Grindhouse. A ton of that. And I'm so happy to see it. So th this is exactly something that we, we kind of hoped at some point the community would sort of embrace is if there was a film we talked about, because I hear this a lot. Um, Justin, I'm talking about you. I hear somebody go, well, I only listen to the shows of the films that I, that I saw. And that's cool. If you've got a favorite and if we happen to talk about it and you want to hear our take on it, totally, totally get that. But if there's a film that you hadn't seen or it's been a long time since you watched it, or maybe you didn't like it the first time we had a, we had a few of those, like the, Hey, I didn't really dig grindhouse or I didn't like death proof, but you know what? I'm going to go back and go back and watch it because you guys rep for it. That's what makes me happy more than anything is people giving things a second chance. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And we've, we've had a lot of people tell us, Hey, I'm glad you did it or B I'm glad you did it. I haven't seen it in a while. I didn't like death proof at the time. I'm going to give it a second chance or yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we, we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting there, Troy. We are getting there where we can get people to, to listen to what we say. I, I wouldn't say we're influencers just yet. But dang it, we're getting close. We're getting close. Yeah. We might get that Swedish fish endorsement yet. I mean, somebody asked why we, uh, the, the other day why we don't get commercials. And I'm like, because well, Swedish fish hasn't offered us free Swedish fish to advertise for them. Yeah. Or La Columbia Coffee. Ooh. Um, I'm we, telling you right I, now. I will sell my soul for that. I would, yeah. I got to put a new order in too. Um, get that subscription, bro. Every three weeks. I know, but I like trying out different stuff from the website. So I always get the fish town. Okay, folks, here's a plug for La Columbia coffee. What's, is it the website? LaColumbia.com? Yep. Yeah. So it's a, it's a coffee place out of Philadelphia. Uh, amazing coffee. Go get the fish town. That's my favorite. Um, Nizzy uh, has fish up there for me. Neza's up there for me as well. Um, lion is up there for me as well. So get the whole bean, yes. grind your, grind your beans yourself. Right before you make it, it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. Absolutely. There. Look, our first advertisement. We're not for free. Gonna, we're and we're gonna go spend money with them. Yeah. Um. All right. Listener feedback from Zoe. So he sent a really long email in. I'm gonna read some of it. The problem is he sent an email with some science in it. We have a strict policy here at Not a Bomb. We don't like science or math. Yeah. So if you're putting science and math in an email, it probably won't get read. I'm just joking. It'll probably and get read. So. We saw your stuff out there. We're sorry for your loss. We won't say anything on here because it's your personal business, but we will 
we are here for you. We love you, man. You let us know if you need anything. But real quick, he gave us some feedback on Superman 4. It says, great work, as always, goes out to you, Brad, and the Cupcake Jose on talking about Superman 4 and the general conversation regarding this classic character. I'm going to have to go with Brad and the robot on this one. It's definitely a bomb. The first two films in the series had set a certain expectation with audiences. Even after the third film, there's hope that a fourth could pull a Hail Mary. But alas, it's fair to say this film didn't resonate with audiences. I wanted to write about something else, though. I don't consider myself the biggest Soups fan, nor am I an authority on him, but I do feel that I can add to the conversation. I want to address a wider point regarding Kal-El. In the discussion on the episode, he had been referred to as being all-powerful and how difficult it is for writers to write for a character who was so powerful. The last son of Krypton is indeed very powerful, and in the hands of a poor writer, poor writer, if I could talk, you'll get some truly terrible stories. However, there are ways that writers generally get around that and can write some decent narratives. First, Superman is not all-powerful, and while he's above average intelligence, he's not regarded as super smart. You know, I never thought of that. I think he's onto something here. Yeah. Along with his known and overused weaknesses or vulnerabilities to kryptonite and magic, he is often pitted against beings who are just plain more powerful than he is. This is the most often exploited in the movies in the form of Zod or any other Kryptonian, but he also has a tough time with Doomsday, Bizarro, Lobo, Darkseed, Mongol, the Purple Parasite. I don't know any of these. I, I know Doomsday and Darkseed. I, man, I'm not the comic book nerd I thought I was. Uh, and various other extremely powerful characters. Secondly, writers often pits the Man of Steel against dudes that are just plain smarter than he is. This is usually Luther, Batman, or Brainiac, who brings the brains and the brawn. Soups is often pitted against various smarty pants who construct all types of high-tech gizmos that disrupt or negate Superman's powers. Lastly, the way that a really smart storyteller normally deals with Superman is to put Soups in a moral dilemma. They focus on Clark's character and who he is as a person. We see this even in Superman the movie. And really the question comes down to, does he keep his promise to first save Miss Eve Tessmacher's mother in New Jersey, or does he break his promise and first save the love of his life, Lois, in California? In Superman 2, he wonders if he should be selfish and give up his powers and his duty to look after the world to be with Lois. Throughout the comics, there are stories that test Superman without really addressing his powers. This is generally how one gets around writing for a superpower character, super powerful character. There we go. <laughs> Run out steam on there, Brad. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Superman can't have good stories. I just think overall, I just don't find him as interesting as other characters, but I'm not saying he's probably, I mean, he's arguably number one or number two, the most famous. So, and, and I know there's great Superman stories out there, but it, I'm just not a DC guy anyway. So I'll say this. It's having I mean, this, Batman is an infinitely more interesting character than Superman. I have always found that to be so, but I would also be the first to say I haven't done a deep dive in any of the Superman comics, but doing that episode, Same. going back and rewatching all those films, um, even revisiting all-star Superman, the animated film, it, it's given me an itch to go back and try and find some of the, what is considered the classic Superman stories and give it a chance. So, um, yeah, Zoe, I love the email. I, I even, I even, so just behind the scenes, this, this feedback goes on and actually gets into the science that we talked about too. And uh, Zoe makes a couple of good points in terms of 
the gravity outside of the earth, et cetera. But yeah, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Again, we're, we're, we love our movie science. We don't like the real thing, but uh, we do appreciate those who kind of point out the, um, I don't know, accuracies that movies do portray, even though sometimes they look a little wonky. But so thank you so much for the feedback. Brad, if somebody wants to send us feedback or share their thoughts, even on the movie we talked about tonight, how they do that. Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com or go to not a bomb podcast.com and hit the contact us button up at the top. Or you can look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Troy, do you also want to know other shows that people should be listening to? Yes. Put that stuff in my ear right now. All right. That would be Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Watch Skip Plus the VHS Files, which they just released a new episode on Willow. So good for them. Night of the Living Podcast, the Mixtape Podcast, and Raiders of the Podcast across the the pond yeah i heard that uh, willow episode was really good they spent a lot of time on val kilmer's filmography and And skipped uh, over heat oh they did skip right over it troy that's okay unsubscribe (laughs) (laughs) um yes folks thank you so much for listening to this week uh we're working behind the scenes on a couple of special episodes for this month one I think everybody knows about, Brad, is uh, going to have to watch, was it from Justin to Kelly? Is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, that came in the mail today. Yeah, I got my copy the other day, too. Um, I can't wait to put in the full screen version. On DVD. Crank up the volume. Listen to those uh, young kids singing the snappy songs. I'm going to get my wife to watch it with me. I was going to do the same thing. I, You know what? They're downstairs watching The Pest right now, so... No, they're not. Are they really? Oh my God. Yeah. Just don't, don't I don't even give you the woes. Of summertime. What. Summertime is weird around your house. I, it is. Um, but we've got another special episode that's coming up. We're going to have a little bit more information on that as it approaches. We're kind of excited about this one because uh, it, it kind of came out of the blue and in the minute we got a chance to, to do this. We're like, heck yeah, we're going to talk about it. So um, stay tuned. That'll be coming towards the end of the month. What else, Brad? Am I missing any other major announcements? Not really. Okay. See, we're not we're not guessing on anything anytime soon. So yeah, uh, I've already been told I have to go over to watch Skip Plus when Mission Impossible comes out and give oh, them a yeah. lesson on cruisology. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. So, okay. Well, folks, I don't know. Oh, if, Guardians oh, passed eight hundred million dollars, so I, I win. Okay. You, we had a bet on how much Guardians is going to make. You're you're winning. We get it. It'll be curious how June. Uh, ends and we see our picks on bombs, not a bombs, etc. Kevin gave us this idea for those who haven't caught up on the episodes that as a month comes due for the summer movie season, we would go back and pick which ones we think are going to bomb and not a bomb. Our June picks are out there and uh, we're going to see how that plays out. And then we're going to do a pick for July here coming up as well. Correct. So thank you, Kevin, for that idea. Uh, I guess that's it. So, folks, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you so much for downloading this episode. We love all of you. Come back next week. We're going to listen to an awesome soundtrack and talk about Money Train. We'll see you then. Don't lose your head. 